Welcome to the 206th episode of the 4th and 24 podcast with Patrick Winograd. I'm your host, Randy Winograd. In this edition of the podcast, our topics are a brief overview of Patrick's weekend predictions, a review of the NBA and NHL playoffs, and our weekly look at Major League Baseball. So let's jump right in, starting as always with a look back at Patrick's weekend predictions, which are posted every Thursday on our website, 4thand24.com. Let's start in the NBA, where Patrick went 1-1 one one with his weekend predictions. Similarly, in the NHL, Patrick went 1-1 one one with his weekend predictions. And in Major League Baseball, Patrick went 3-1 and one with his weekend series predictions. That brings Patrick to a 5-3 and three combined record this past week, which results in him having a 733 and 475 overall record. That's a 60.7% winning percentage. Patrick, your thoughts on this weekend's predictions? Well, I was pretty satisfied with this week. Um, obviously, first hockey predictions ever. Both games went to overtime. I was not going to be very thrilled if I ended up 0-2 all-time. That would be kind of upsetting. But that didn't happen because I picked the Golden Knights to win. They did win their first game in overtime. However, I did pick the Hurricanes to win. They lost their game in a four-overtime thriller. We will talk about that one later. Uh, back to the NBA. I had the Nuggets taking a 2-0 advantage on the Lakers, but I did not have the Heat beating itself for the second time on the road in Game 2, um, which they did end up doing. So I went 1-1 there, 1-1 in the NHL. And MLB, it started off pretty rough. Um, the Orioles, they took – sorry, the Orioles swept the Blue Jays. They took the first game, obviously, and then took all of the games. The Rays took game one from the Brewers, but it wasn't all that impressive, and they had been a little bit cold recently, so I was starting to get worried about that. Uh, the Braves took game one from the Mariners, but the Pirates took game one from the Diamondbacks with Zach Gallon on the mound. And I was really banking on the Diamondbacks winning the game with Gallon on the mound because the Pirates have the early Cy Young contender, uh, Mitch Keller, or had him going on the Saturday game. So I was kind of doubting their ability to win that game. I thought it would swing it. Whoever could beat the other team's ace would kind of swing the series. And I thought the Diamondbacks had the better offense than on that Sunday game with neither team having the real aces on the mound. The Diamondbacks would win it, but things took a turn. The Rays won the second game of the series against the Brewers, and that sealed their victory there. And the Diamondbacks were able to beat Mitch Keller after the Pirates had beaten their ace, Zach Gallen. So they even that series up. The Braves lost to the Mariners, even that series up. And on Sunday, I was already one and one, but this time things went my way. Both of the two teams that I needed to win won their games. The Braves closed out the series against the Mariners, and the Diamondbacks closed out the series against the Pirates which led to that 5-3 and three overall record. Pretty satisfied with this week's predictions. Next week, don't know how many leagues we will have because I typically don't predict when there's only one game in a league. And, uh, well, as we'll get to later, there will be no Lakers game after this Thursday. And, frankly, I'm not thinking that the Celtics Heat series is going to last too much longer anyway. Um, so we'll see what happens in terms of what leagues I'm predicting next week. I assure you there will be predictions, but it's possible it's just MLB predictions. All right. Well, those predictions for next weekend, which we're a little um, unsure of what they will be, will be posted on our website on Thursday, as Patrick foreshadowed there, previewed there, alluded to there. Uh, let's move on to our review of the NBA playoffs, which are now in the conference finals. Um, one of them we already have a result from. That's starting in the Western Conference. The number one seeded Denver Nuggets swept the number six seeded Los Angeles Lakers four games to zero, earning the Nuggets their first ever franchise NBA Finals bid. Patrick? Well, they will be earning their first ever uh, NBA championship in about two and a half weeks. Um, I'm sure of that, but I'll get to that talk later and we'll probably talk about that next week. 
um, when it's more relevant because the NBA Finals don't shift up no matter what uh, happens in the series before. So even if the Heat were to sweep the Celtics and end that series tonight, then uh, we would still have a week, basically, without basketball. Uh, so we'll keep those finals predictions until next week anyway. But I would like to say, overall, as a note for both the NBA and the NHL, there have been seven games played in the NBA in the conference finals and five in the NHL. The losing team in the series has not won a single game. I don't think I've ever seen this before. And not only is it that, that the losing team hasn't won a game, some of the losing teams are actually the higher seeds. The Celtics are a two-seed against the eight-seed of Heat. The Hurricanes are a two-seed against the eight-seed of Panthers. It's crazy to me. I mean, Vegas Vegas dominating the Stars is really not that big of a surprise to me, honestly. Um, and we'll talk about them more later. But the fact that the losing teams have not won a single game is just insane. It's not like these are bad matchups. All these games have been close. In fact, all the games in hockey except for last night's Panthers game went to overtime. At least one overtime. Um, but it's just crazy to see that. But back to this series, um, speaking of close but sweet, Look, Denver didn't win a single game in the series by more than 11. They won game one by six. They won game two by six, by five. They won game four by two. And then, as I said, they won game three by 11. But the fact of the matter is, this is this was one of the closest sweeps you will ever see. Every game in the series could have gone a different way. If the Lakers had had, swept, had won game one, I wouldn't be so surprised if they were sitting, if we were sitting here talking about them with the sweep and LeBron going for ring number five. Because I really feel like this is just kind of a momentum shifting series and, and just within each game there were moments where both teams had chances to win it and the Nuggets just happened to come out with the right plays, some might say lucky plays, um, at, at whatever time they needed it. And it started back in game one, 132 to 126. The Nuggets got the win. Uh, the Lakers played a horrible defense in this game. Did not play a good first half whatsoever. They brought it back in the second half. Um, and, and tried to keep it closer. And they did a good job of making it a contested game by the end of the game. Uh, they discovered at the end of the game that Rui Hachimura on Nikola Jokic was a decent matchup for them. Uh, AD had 40 points in this game. LeBron had 26, 12, and 9, but did not make a 3. That would become a theme for throughout the series. Hachimura and Reeves combined for 40. But on the other end of things, Nikola Jokic had 34, 21, and 14 on 12 of 17 shooting. Michael Porter had 15 points, 10 rebounds. Jamal Murray had 31, 5, 5. KCP had 21 points. Bruce Brown had 16 points. The Nuggets just throughout the series showed that they have way better depth than the Lakers. Um, that was evident in game one. And it continued to be throughout the series as we move on to game two, where the Nuggets beat the Lakers 108 to 103. Rui Hachimura and Austin Reeves combined for 43 in this game. Hachimura had 21 and 8 of 10 shooters. Austin Reeves had 22. On five to nine to three, LeBron had 22, 10, and nine. Another was near missing a triple double, but AD in this game completely struggled. I think if he had a solid game in this one, the Lakers win, uh, but he didn't. He had 18 and 14, but four 15 shooting, a far cry from his 40 point performance the night before, and, or not the night before, but a few nights before. And then on the other side of things, Nicole Jokic once again had a good double, 23, 17, to 12. Uh, not not quite the most efficient shooting night for him, but his teammates made up for it. Um, Jamal Murray had 37 points on 11 of 24 shooting, 10, 10 rebounds, 5 of 50 as well. Uh, Michael Porter had 16 points on 4 of 73 and 7 rebounds as well. And then Bruce Brown had 12 points and 5 rebounds on 5 of 11 shooting. Uh, so, you can tell. I mean, 
this, this is kind of the story right here. I already said, but the depth of the Nuggets. I don't want to say frustrated the Lakers, but that was kind of the key in the series. They just they, their depth played better. Um, and you know, Aaron Gordon kind of had his fair share of struggles, but he even brought it back in Game Four, which I'll get to in a second. But just overall, it just doesn't feel like the Lakers had enough in terms of their roster construction to match up with what the Nuggets have. Um, beyond LeBron and AD, and then Reeves and Hachimura, who both had pretty quality series and played well in pretty much every game, uh, the Lakers lacked the necessary adjustments from the coaching staff, and they also lacked just the necessary shooting. I mean, it, it was just a shooting problem for them throughout the series. And then in Game 3, this is where things really started to tumble for the Lakers. It became very obvious who the problems were. Uh, not to put all the blame on two people, but D'Angelo Russell and Jared Vanderbilt still in the starting lineup for this game combined for five points on one on two of 12 shooting um, and one for seven from three. They only pitched in with four rebounds and four assists combined and three of those assists, sorry, four of those, all, all the assists were D'Angelo Russell. Three of the rebounds were D'Angelo Russell. Um, throughout the lineup, AD had 28 and 18 on 11 of 18 shooting. So a very efficient shooting night for him, a very good shooting night for him. Uh, but 11, eight, 11 of 18, 28 points wasn't enough to match up with Nikola Jokic, who had 24, 6, and 8. Probably his most tame game in the series. But the reason why he didn't score too much is because Jamal Murray had 37 points on 15 of 29 shooting, 7 rebounds. He averaged 32 points throughout the series. Uh, probably the MVP. Well, I think Jokic was the MVP of the series. But if there were ever to be a guy who didn't get an MVP of the series, I know they don't even have that in the, in the NBA, I don't think. Or maybe they did make that a thing last year. Um, but if there were ever a guy to play this well and not win that award, I would be surprised. I mean, I don't think anybody has ever played better than Jamal Murray has as the second man um, in, on the team. Like, yes, stars have played this well, but not the second option on the team. And Jokic, he doesn't even need to do. I mean, he did amazing in this game, as he always does. But he didn't even need to do that much just because Jamal Murray was so dominant. Uh, Bruce Brown had 15, 5, and 5 off the bench. KCP had 17 on 4 of 7 shooting. Michael Porter Jr. had 14, 10, and 6. He was good throughout the series, honestly. He, he had some rough shooting nights, but overall, his efficiency was good enough to propel the Nuggets to, to get some good scoring from the third and fourth options with between him and KCP and also Bruce Brown to an extent. And the Lakers, just as I said, didn't have that. Austin Reeves had 23 on 7 of 10 shooting. LeBron had 23, 12, and 7, but just not efficient enough overall. Rui had... 13.6 rebounds on 5 of 12 shooting. But the rest of the Lakers bench kind of struggled. Lonnie Walker only with 9 points. Dennis Schroeder only with 5 and fouled out of the game. Uh, so just overall, just not enough from the other players on the Lakers. If you've been watching TNT's coverage of that of the Eastern Conference series, you will hear Kenny the Jet Smith say all the time that we know the stars are going to show up. It's more about the other guys around you. They are the guys who, when you get to these types of playoff series, they're going to propel you to the victory. And the Lakers guys that are kind of their periphery guys just are getting outmatched by the Nuggets. It doesn't feel like Reeves and Hanchamura aren't up to the challenge or weren't up to the challenge in the series. It just feels like the Lakers were one player short. You know, the, the Nuggets had Aaron Gordon didn't even have a good series. So he kind of cancels out there with D'Angelo Russell to me. Uh, but Porter Jr., KCP and Bruce Brown, that that trio was just a little bit extra depth than Reeves and Hachimura kind of doing it all on their own besides LeBron and AD. And I just feel like without having kind of a third guy that's that that's that makes you have kind of a solid five players who can really, really score, 
and, and yes, they did have that throughout the season, but it, it was D'Angelo Russell and he didn't show up in the series without kind of having that the Lakers just didn't really have much of a chance. And I really feel like these small margins in these games probably swing. If you have a guy like, like Hachimura knocking down all his shots. Um, if you have a guy like Schroeder coming off the bench and knocking down all those shots. So I just feel like that's where the series swung for the Lakers. And in game four, that was evident. The Lakers had a 15-point halftime lead, but the Nuggets took the lead late in the third quarter because the Lakers forgot what defense was. Uh, Pretty bad time to do that, but got outscored 36-16 to in the third. Lakers actually did win the fourth quarter, outscoring the Nuggets 22-19, to but it wasn't quite enough to tie the game, send it to overtime, or win the game. Aaron Gordon finally showed up in this game, 22-6-5. Uh, his, his presence was really, really key for Denver to win this series. Or sorry, for Denver to close out the series in this game. As I said, he had kind of a rough series. But Jokic had 30, 14, and 13 in this game on 11 of 24 shooting. Jamal Murray had 25 points, 5 assists on 10 of 18 shooting. Uh, KCP had 13. Bruce Brown didn't need to do that much because of the fact that Aaron Gordon kind of woke up in this series. Every Nuggets starter had 13 or more. Michael Porter Jr. had 15 and 10. On the Lakers side of things, LeBron had 31 points in the first half, but just nine in the second half. 40, 10, and nine was his final line. He did all he could to propel the Lakers to the victory, but Anthony Davis was really never the same AD after the first game. Never put up another 30-point game after scoring 40 in game one. He had 21 and 14 in this game on 6 of 15 shooting. Hachimura wasn't even quite the same. He was inserted in the starting lineup, played 42 minutes, but only shot 3 of 12, had 10 points and 7 rebounds. That wasn't enough. Schroeder only had, not only, but Schroeder had 13 and 5 on 5 of 13. Austin Reeves had 17 points on 6 of 11. But overall, it just really wasn't enough from the Lakers. Um, Bench points, they had 8. Sorry, they had 10. Uh, Tristan Thompson had 4. He got his first minutes of the year for the Lakers. I honestly almost forgot that he was on the roster. Um, Russell had four and Lonnie Walker had two. But other than that, the Lakers just had no production from those other guys like I, like I talked about. And that was the downfall of them, as we predicted it might have been, considering their lack of depth all season long. Yeah, a um, quick end to that series. Um, there's not much more to say other than, uh, like you said, Nuggets are getting some rest and waiting to see how long the layoff will be before they face Someone in the Eastern Conference Finals, that someone looks like it might be the number eight seeded Miami Heat, who I think surprisingly lead the number two seeded Celtics three games to zero. Patrick, uh, your recap of games one, two, and then if you call game three a game, uh, at least from the Celtics effort standpoint. Well, um, as you mentioned, the Nuggets will be waiting, although they do know how much rest they will have, because as I said, the NBA final schedule is already set. Uh, They have nine days of rest. We don't know who they will be playing, but they will be playing somebody on Thursday, June 1st. Um, We will predict, by the way, even if the Heat Celtics goes to a game seven, it would still be, uh, well, actually it might be before we do our podcast, but we'll, we'll, we'll see what happens with that in terms of that timing. I don't think there will be a game seven in the series though, because as you mentioned, the Celtics quite frankly have given up. I'm not going to lie. I'm going to go back to game one first and talk about that and then talk about game two. But I'm really waiting to talk about game three because I have a lot to say about the Celtics right now. Uh, But in game one, let's just go back to that. The Heat sent a message. Um, They went on the road. They beat the Celtics. The Celtics haven't been good at home, honestly, this entire postseason. The last two postseasons, I think think they were six and six at home if you combined all the the games from the last two years heading into, I think, game two of this series. They were six and six at home. So it's not that surprising that they lost that game at home. But the fact of the matter is, 
he would still like to take that advantage in the series. Miami is comfortable playing against the Celtics. They've done it before. They were there last year um, and they're used to it. So they don't really, they don't really take the Celtics as as big of a challenge um, and with as much of intensity as maybe, you know, a team like the Sixers in terms of intensity. I mean, just kind of crumbling under the pressure, but in this game, Bam Adebayo was very, very efficient. 20 points, eight rebounds for him on nine of 13 shooting. Jimmy Butler had 35, five and seven on 12, on 12, 25, excuse me. If he was 12 for 15, that would have been crazy. Gabe Vincent had 15 points on three of five from three. Max Struess had 15 points on three of five from three. Cody, Caleb Martin, excuse me, had 15 points on three of seven from three. Kyle Lowry had 15 points on three of five from three. And as you can see, the Heat just had four players combined for 60 points. Mind you, these players, Caleb Martin, undrafted. Kyle Lowry, 37 years old. Max Struess, undrafted. Gabe Vincent, undrafted. The Miami Heat player development has just taken them to another level over these other teams. Because when you look at the Celtics, yes, they got their production from the guys they needed to get it from in this game, kind of. Tatum had 30 in seven on nine of 17 shooting. Jalen Brown had 22, nine and five. Robert Williams had 14 and seven. He was a perfect six of six from the field. Uh, Marcus Smart had 13 points and 11 assists. So a really good game from him. Malcolm Brogdon had 19 points. Derek White had 11 points. But the fact of the matter is, and by the way, he is an undrafted guy too, so credit to them for that, but that wasn't really their player development. He got developed in San Antonio. But that point aside, the fact of the matter is, the Heat just have that depth advantage over anybody they play because they trust anybody in their rotation. Even in this game, Duncan Robinson had a flat zero across the scoreboard. Zero points, zero rebounds, zero assists. He didn't even foul anybody, so good for him. 0 of 2 from the field, 0 of 2 from 3 in 7 minutes. But they went right back to him in game 2, and in game 3, it all paid off too. I'll get to that in a second. But the fact of the matter is that depth advantage that the Heat have created over these other teams is just something that it really can't be overstated, honestly, enough. I, I can't talk about it enough. But in this game, the ability to have Jimmy Butler, even in the five minutes that he took off of this game, the Heat just had enough production from their bench because their bench is just that good that they were able to secure the victory. I mean, there's nothing else to it. The, Butler is an amazing closer. And that's exactly what happened in the fourth quarter. And, you know, the Celtics shot over 52%, shot, shot 52% from the floor, but the Heat shot 51.6% from three. And, you know, you could have said, okay, well, that shooting was great, but it's not going to continue. Um, and as a result, the Celtics can get back in the series. That's what I thought. But then the Heat turned it back up on the defensive end in game two, where they won 111 to 105. Uh, they only shot 34.6% from three, but that was still enough to win this game. Um, I will get to that in a second because the fact of the matter is they held the Celtics down to a worse shooting percentage. The Celtics shot 28.6% from three, and that was the key for the Heat. Kevin Love, he had only five rebounds, two assists, no points. But Jimmy Butler, 12 of 25 again, 27 points, eight rebounds, six assists. Bam Adebayo, 22, 17, and nine, almost a triple-double for Bam. Crazy to see him get those assist numbers, honestly. Um, Gabe Vincent and Max Schroes only combined for 20 instead of 30 this game. But then off the bench, Duncan Robinson and Caleb Martin went nuclear. Caleb Martin had 25 points in this game on 11 of 16 shooting. Duncan Robinson had 15 on 6 of 9 shooting. And really, it was the story of the series. When the Heat needed someone to step up, they had multiple guys come. And I shouldn't say story of the series because the series is technically not over yet. But they had multiple guys step up when they just needed one probably to step up and make it a close game win them the game uh keep it close in the fourth quarter to turn it over to jimmy as kind of like a closer but 
they got multiple guys to produce, and that's the reason why they will probably be moving on, and that's the reason why they lead 3-0 right now. Uh, Tatum had 34-13-8 on 10-20 shooting, but 3-10 of 10 from 3, like I said. Whole team struggled shooting threes in this game for the Celtics. Their starting lineup was a combined 5-for-23 from the three-point line. The team was 10-for-35 overall. Uh, it just wasn't enough for the Celtics. Uh, Malcolm Brogdon had 13, Derek White had 11. Jalen Brown had 16, but he had he was 7 of 23 from the floor. That defense, um, it was just too much for him. And then obviously, you know, at the end of this game, you also had Grant Williams kind of poking the bear there with Jimmy Butler. But honestly, I don't really mind it because the Celtics needed to try something. And in game three, it was evident that there was only one player playing with any energy, and that was Grant Williams. Um, and in game three, to be quite honest with you, the Celtics just gave up. Um, early in the game, they were struggling. They continued to struggle throughout the game. Um, and when the going got tough, the tough didn't get going for the Celtics. Or maybe you could say that, you know, when the going gets tough, the tough get going and the Celtics don't have anybody that's tough. I mean, I don't know how you want to phrase it, but the fact of the matter is the Heat took a huge lead over the Celtics into halftime. The Celtics had a nice response at the very beginning of the second half. And, and you know, I, I'm going to find that stretch now. They were down 15. They were down 61 to 46. Marcus Smart got an and one. You thought that maybe, just maybe, the Celtics were going to be able to bring it back. And they were kind of, maybe not bring it back, but they were, you know, at least going to fight in this game. They had cut the lead to 12. But then Gabe Vincent makes a shot. Jimmy Butler makes a shot. And then one, it's back to 17. Jalen Brown makes a layup. But Max Struess makes a three to make it an 18-point lead. Then, bam, dunk. Gabe Vincent three. And all of a sudden, it's 74 to 51. It's a 23-point lead. And at that moment, you could tell that the Celtics had just given up. Jimmy Butler went to the knee to call a timeout, uh, mocking Al Horford for what he had done in game one um, that obviously didn't even pay off because they didn't even win that game. But in the end, the Heat had a 23-point lead. They got a technical for that. The, the Celtics got three points off the technical possession, whatever. Um, they cut it to 20, but that was about it. Gabe Vincent made another three. And then it just kept spiraling out of control from there. Um, and then by the fourth quarter, it wasn't, there weren't even starters in the game because it was that much of a blowout. Um, I'm just disappointed, honestly, in the Celtics lack of fight in this series. And I don't really have much to say other than the fact that I'm disappointed in the Celtics, but at the same time, all the credit in the world goes to the heat because it's their play that broke the Celtics spirit. The reason why the Celtics are playing so poorly is because the heat have all the answers for anything the Celtics throw at them. And the heat and the Celtics just don't understand what to do because they feel that they're the more talented team because they are, but the heat are so much better coached than the Celtics right now. Um, and, and Joe Mazzulla did say that it is his fault and that um, he doesn't have his guys prepared. But at some point, the players on the floor also have to be mentally prepared themselves, not let emotions get the best of them or let their emotions carry them through the game. And they just haven't been able to do that. The Celtics just overall, just a big collapse, honestly. Um, didn't expect to see this from them. Uh, they should be old enough that this shouldn't be an issue for them. But it has been an issue. And as a result... You have the Heat, the more mature, uh, at this point, the better team, definitely the better coach team, just completely out coaching, out playing the Celtics. And that's the reason why this series isn't close at all. Um, do, can the Celtics bring it back? Technically, yes, because anything's possible. But the fact of the matter is they're not going to. Uh, yeah, we'll see how many games it takes. Uh, it would take a miracle, but the Celtics do have talent, but it really doesn't look like they're going to mount that comeback. We'll see what happens in game four. Uh, we'll talk about that uh, next week in our recap. Let's move on to the other conference finals that are going on in U.S. major sports, the NHL Stanley Cup playoffs. 
We'll start in the Eastern Conference Final, where the Panthers lead the Hurricanes three games to zero. Panthers uh, won the first game of the series, three to two in quadruple overtime. Yes, you heard me right. Uh, it ended way too late here. I was not able to stay up for it. However, I will guarantee all of you that in the future, give me a week when I'm back in LA for the summer, I 100% would have been awake for this game. But 2 a.m. my time with classes the next day, not going to happen that I stay up for that long. Uh, hopefully, uh, there. Hopefully, maybe there will be more entertaining games to take this long um, in the future, but the series is nearing uh, its end, so that might not happen. Uh, but look, I- I'm so impressed with Florida. Honestly, I- I'm so happy for this team that they were able to pull off this underdog story. Uh, and, and, you know, when you look at their run, it's really not surprising that they're able to be up three to nothing on the Hurricanes because Boston had them on the ropes in the first round. Uh, Boston had them, well, I forget what it was in the series. I'm going to go check right now uh, as my hands fail me as I failed to check it. Boston was up three to one in the first round. So the fact that the Panthers were able to come back and win three games in a row against the team with the most points of all time in NHL history should tell you that the Panthers are capable of winning three in a row against anybody. They did it against the Maple Leafs to take a 3-0 lead. And they did it again against the Hurricanes. They have gone to overtime so many times, it feels like they never lose in overtime. Um, and they're they're just they've just been more clutch than their opponents. And just overall, they have gotten the right plays when they've needed it. And by the end of the game, the the Panthers just keep coming out on top. Their defense has been very, very clutch when they've needed it to be. They have been very good at preventing goals in big moments. Um, Carolina scored twice off the power play in this game in in game one in that three to two loss uh but the panthers penalty kill hasn't been the greatest that's been true all postseason but they've been able to overcome that seth jarvis had a had a power play goal to take the lead for the hurricanes but florida responded barkov and verhage with goals in the second period to give the panthers a lead and then uh carolina got a goal another power play goal in the third period and then of course overtime double overtime three overtimes no scoring until finally matthew kachuk in the fourth overtime scored the goal gave the panthers the win and that was not going to be the only time that matthew kachuk would end a game in the series as in game two once again barkov scored in the second period chatfield scored for the hurricanes in the first period it was one to one going into overtime but Matthew Kachuk on the power play scored the game-winning goal for the Panthers to take that game 2-1 to one in overtime, give Florida a 2 nothing lead. And then they went back home, which is crazy that they won two overtime games and then they went back home. And then in game three, this was the Bobrovsky show. Uh, Carolina shut out in a playoff game, something that you don't see very often, especially in today's NHL with the players as skilled as they are. Sam Reinhart with a power play goal uh, off an assist by Matthew Kachuk and also Sam Bennett. That was the only goal of the game in the second period, middle of the second period. That power play goal was all Florida needed. I think Carolina had something like 16 of the final 17 shots of the game, uh, shots on goal at least. But at the same time, Bobrovsky saved them all. 32 saves, 1,000 save percentage in this game. 65 consecutive saves Bobrovsky has made in this series. And really that is the story of the series. Bobrovsky has just been an immovable object in the goal and Carolina just can't figure out a way to score on him. And as a result, you have the Panthers with this three to nothing lead in the series. Okay. Let's move over to the Western conference, which a familiar pattern here. We see overtime and one goal games, the golden Knights lead the stars two games to zero. This series lead, perhaps maybe a little bit less surprising. The team that has been better all season long 
uh, is the team who's winning it. Dallas, of course, still a good team, but Dallas, um, not exactly up to the quality that the Golden Knights have been so far. These games have been very, very close, as you mentioned, both of them going into overtime. Uh, game one, Vegas won 4-2-3 in overtime. Jason Robertson scored his first goal in a very long time, I think since April 25th, I believe, um, in the first period here to give Dallas the lead. Carlson responded with two of his own, one in the second, one in the third, to give Vegas a 2-1 to lead. Then goals back and forth for the rest of the third until Jamie Benn tied it up at the very end of the third period uh, for the Dallas Stars to make it 3-3. Three to three. But then Howden with the goal for the for the Vegas Golden Knights, excuse me, um, as they went on to win the first game 4-3 to three in overtime. A clutch performance from them. And in game two, they did the same thing. Uh, they were able to just score better than Dallas has. Heiskanen with the goal in the first period to take the lead. Again, Dallas up one nothing, But Mark Stone came back with a power play goal for Vegas to tie it up. Jason Robertson again with a goal, his second go- game in a row with a goal. I expect him fully to score again tonight as he's on a little bit of a hot streak. One of the points leaders in the NHL throughout the season, but has struggled in the playoffs. Um, but now two games in a row with a goal. This one a power play goal to make it 2-1. to one. Dallas in the second. But then March Assault in the third period had the goal to tie us up, send it to overtime, and Stevenson cashed in for Vegas uh, in overtime with the 3-2 to two, uh, victory for the Golden Knights. Really nothing specific that I have for this series. I mean, it's been close. Uh, both teams playing up to the expectations. It has been as, as close of a series as it should be, uh, but it looks like Vegas still has the upper hand, and I'm still definitely trusting them uh, to win the series with the 2-0 lead that they have and just with, honestly, superior talent. Uh, to the Dallas Stars. Yeah, well, uh, one thing we've always said, the Stanley Cup playoffs are the best playoffs in all of sports, and this uh, these conference finals show why. Um, four out of five games in overtime, the other one a 1-0, one-goal game, obviously, and the other overtime games being a one-goal game. All right, let's move on from the NHL playoffs to our a weekly look at Major League Baseball, starting, as always, in the American League East. If you haven't heard this phrase before, then you haven't listened to any podcast or any coverage of the MLB it's the Tampa Bay Rays in first in the American League East. Uh, they are 35 and 14. Uh, God forbid they've been five and five in their last 10 games, and now they only have a three-game lead over the Orioles. However, let's give credit to the Orioles, the only team with a better record in all of MLB that's not the Rays. Well, actually, it's nobody. The Orioles have the second best record. The only team with a better record is the Tampa Bay Rays, or are the Tampa Bay Rays, excuse me for the grammar era error. Orioles seven and three in their last 10. They're now just three games back of the Rays. Uh, They would be wild card one if the playoffs were to start today. And I would absolutely pick them to sweep the Twins if they played them in a series because the Twins are no match for this team. But that's a different story. Uh, They've won three in a row. As I said, they're seven and three in their last 10. A great run differential. Really good pitching staff. The young guys have been exactly as good as they've been supposed to be for the Orioles. Everybody else who was already up last year has been as good as as they've been uh, set out to be. And again, just this team... I said it last year, the way they were trending at the end of the season meant that they were going to be really, really good this year. I wanted to see them go out and make a few more moves to be perhaps contenders because the fact of the matter is if they don't make a trade at the deadline, I still don't think this roster is World Series quality, but it's at least quality enough to win a playoff series. If they get a tough matchup, they'll at least take a few games, but I do really think that they missed an opportunity um, to really start a championship window if they can't get some improvements at the trade deadline. Their championship window will be next year and beyond. They don't quite have the pitching staff, but for now, they have enough to be an amazing regular season team um, and enough to definitely, like I said, win a playoff series or two, just I don't think enough to 
beat some of the juggernauts that exist, like the Rays. Um, and also, like the Yankees, who have finally put it together, they've won four in a row. They're eight and two in their last 10, uh, 29 and 20, six games back. They got Luis Severino back for the first time in a very long time. That was very good for them as they continue to have an injured, beaten up rotation. Um, and just really overall, they had a very emotional series against the Blue Jays, which is hard to believe that that was only the beginning of last week, but it was. Um, some interesting shenanigans going on uh, in that series. But Aaron Judge has come back um, from his injury, and all of a sudden, he's back to being the Aaron Judge of last year, leads the league in OPS. Sorry, Brent Rooker, but that is not your title anymore. Um, and the Yankees just, with their star back, with enough starting pitching back, they have been able to kind of bring things in the right direction. And I really think that once Carlos Rodon comes back, if he does come back, um, they're going to be a real force to be reckoned with. Um, speaking of teams that were forced to be reckoned with, you have the Red Sox, you have the Blue Jays at the bottom of this division. Being at the bottom of this division is no shame. I just don't have many words about these teams. They've been very cold recently. The Blue Jays have lost five in a row. Um, after I picked them to lose the series against the Braves and they swept the Braves, I picked them to win the series this weekend and they got swept. So I guess I guess Braves fans should be rooting for me to pick against them next week. Or sorry, Blue Jays fans should be uh, rooting for me to pick against them next week so that they can sweep whoever they play. Uh, I probably won't do that. I If I jinx them, that's too bad for them. And then you have the Red Sox at 26 and 22, Blue Jays at 25 and 23. I should say, I didn't say their records before. Uh, Red Sox four and six in their last 10. Lost a tough game last night to the Angels two to one uh, on the road. They, I don't really think the Red Sox are um, a playoff quality team. I do expect them to be the odd man out in the AL East if there's only going to be one team that doesn't make the playoffs from this division, uh, with the Blue Jays being better than the Red Sox as well by the end of the season. But if there are also teams from other divisions, you look at the Rangers, you look at the Astros, we'll talk about that later. I wouldn't be surprised if two of these teams, the AL East, have to miss the playoffs, but the Red Sox are definitely going to be one of them. They just don't quite have the roster quality that the other teams in the East do. Okay, well, let's move on to the AL Central. It is the Minnesota Twins who lead the AL Central. They are 25 and 23. Once again, though, every team in the AL East with a better or at least the same record as the leader in the Central, um, they are four and six in their last 10, the Twins are. But a team that has gotten on a little bit of a streak is the Detroit Tigers. They are 21 and 24, which is still terrible. But, well, it's not terrible. Um, it's under 500. It's not bad, but it's not good either. But they're just two and a half games back of the Twins, and they're playing the Royals right now, so they could really, really dent into that Twins lead. Um, all of a sudden, this Tigers team, maybe a year and a half, two years too late, but they have finally turned things around. Javi Baez has been better this season. They're five and five in their last 10. I won't say I'm excited about the Tigers, but they're at least going to be somewhat decent this year, and I don't really think that they're going to be just kind of a walkover for the rest of the year like they have been recently. Um, and then you have the Guardians. They're 21 and 26. They need to figure it out soon, but it's really just pitching staff injuries. I think when they get healthy on the staff, they will be fine long-term, but they haven't gotten the necessary run support behind a beaten up staff. Um, if their staff was fine, they'd probably be a few games above 500 right now, maybe still would lead this division or at least at 500. The way that their pitching staff is in terms of injuries, this production is just not enough from the offense. And just overall, their, their lack of offense combined with the pitching staff injuries, I feel like I've said this like five times now, but the fact of the matter is that is really the story for them. That's why they're under 500. It will continue to be that way if they don't either get healthy or get better production on the offensive end. Then you have the White Sox. They're six and four in their last 10, the best record in this division in their last 10, but they're still 19 and 30. Uh, somehow that's only six and a half games back um, of the division lead because the Twins have not really opened that gap up that much. Um, but the White Sox, not really going to be 
a contender. Uh, we'll, we'll just have to see if there are approaches to be buy. Sorry, not buyers, but sellers or just non-sellers at the deadline. That will be the most intriguing thing to see with this team uh, come later in the year. As you know, if they're sellers, you might see names like Tim Anderson and Joe Kelly pop up in NL East, NL West races, potentially. The Dodgers have a little bit of a hole at shortstop. The Dodgers have a relationship with Joe Kelly. Not trying to suggest anything, but definitely trying to suggest something. But we'll just have to see what happens with the White Sox. I don't know if they will be sellers, especially if they continue to play okay. They might try to keep this team somewhat competitive, get some fans back. Because after all, this is supposed to be the window of them competing. Uh, they just haven't done that. Then you have the Royals. They're 14 and 35, two and eight in their last 10. They're the Royals. What can you expect? Well, that was an abrupt, uh, <laughs> abrupt close there to look at the Central. Let's move over to the American League West. Well, at the West, you have the usual suspect for the start of the season. And then the other usual suspect for the last maybe six, seven years. Uh, the Rangers at the top, 29 and 18, six and four in their last 10, a plus 106 run differential. They have 301, 301 runs scored, excuse me, which is the most in all of MLB. But the Astros are back. They're on one of those streaks. Last year, I think they had a 13-game winning streak. I think they had another one that was like 12 or 11. They've won eight in a row. They're 9-1 and one in their last 10. And they're coming for the Rangers. They, they want that division crown back. They want to be back in the lead where they belong. Robert Valdez. Had a complete game shutout a few a few days ago. It might have even been yesterday, actually, now that I think about it. I think it was two days ago, though. Uh, but just overall, the Astros are just doing what the Astros do. Uh, it's really hard to put words to it because the fact of the matter is this level of dominance is something that is very hard to come by. And, and you look at their 2017 roster, um, or, or I guess actually the 2019 roster, frankly, is even more stacked. But you look at that lineup, Springer, Correa, Altuve, Michael Brantley, uh, just up and down that line, Maldonado as well was still there. Um, rookie Kyle Tucker, Jordan Alvarez was in there. You look at Yuli Gurriel. You look at all those players, and you look at their current roster, and you say, who is even left on this team? Altuve is injured. Correa is gone. Springer is gone. Gurriel is gone. Maldonado is a shell of his former self. And yet, with all of that going on, they're as good, if not better, than they were back then. They're not better than the 2019 team. But if they win the World Series, technically they are better because 2019 team did lose to the Washington Nationals. Uh, but anyway, th that's a separate kind of discussion there. But I just have to say that what the Astros have done in terms of turning around their roster and just continuing to be dominant is really second to none. If it's second to one, it's only the Dodgers, and we'll get to that in a second. Uh, but the fact of the matter is that team that the Astros have been able to put out for the last few years is just ridiculous that they keep turning it over from one guy to the next, I, I forgot to mention Alex Bregman. I don't know how I didn't mention him because I think he literally almost won. I think he was second in MVP voting in 2019. But anyway, Bregman, he is still on the team. Um, He's had a resurgent season after kind of some injury issues lingered for out, throughout last year for him. Uh, but I'll move on from the Astros for a second. The Angels, they're 26 and 23. They've won two in a row. They're five and five in their last 10. They just, they're a solid team, but I just don't know if solid is going to be enough to make the playoffs um, in the AL at this point. You hope that maybe as AL East teams face each other at the end of the year, some of those records start to fall down. But as it stands now, you have the Rays, the Twins, and the Rangers as divisional leaders. And then the three wildcard spots are the Orioles, the Yankees, and the Astros. And that would be the playoffs. So the Angels would be just on the outside end of that. And honestly, that's kind of where I expect them to be. I don't think that they're better than the Orioles. I don't think that they're going to be better than the Yankees by the end of the season at all. I wouldn't be surprised if the Blue Jays pass them up. 
I wouldn't be surprised if the Twins play okay and the Guardians take the division lead and all of a sudden both of those teams are better than the Angels. It, it just really feels like they finally made enough moves to be a competitive good team and they're going to end the year above 500, but they're just in the wrong league. Uh, they would be easily a playoff team in the National League, but right now in the AL with its depth, they're just not good enough to be there. Um, and speaking of that, same situation. The Mariners made a good run last year, but 23 and 24, six games back, five and five in their last 10. They need to figure it out soon because if they're not going to, um, as I said, the AL is a juggernaut. It's so deep. I just don't know if the Mariners can kind of climb out of a slow start considering that they don't even have, you know, the poor injury issues that the Yankees have, um, that some of the other teams have. So I, the Guardians also, I, I just don't know how they climb out of this, this hole and kind of make the playoffs if they don't go on a crazy run at the end of the year, make some more crazy moves at the deadline. And then finally, if I said it's the Royals at the bottom of this division, I really feel like, or at the bottom of the central, I really feel like the A's don't deserve more than the Royals. But um, I guess congrats to the A's for getting above a 20, per, for getting above a 200 winning percentage on the year. Um, they've now won more than one of their last five games, but 10 and 39 is barely better than the record of Northwestern baseball. And if you look, it's actually only one game better. Um, and it's the same record Northwestern had going into the final game of the season. Two and eight in their last 10. They've lost five in a row. They are the worst pitching staff of all time. The Rangers have a, a crazy amount of runs scored at 301. And these guys have allowed 355. Um, so I, I don't really have words. I mean, this team is just terrible, especially on the pitching staff. I don't know how they fix it. Um, shout out to Brent Rooker and Ryan Noda for being some uh, entertaining players on this team. Essiori Ruiz, who might lead the league in stolen bases. He's going to give Ronald Acuna a run for his money. But outside of those three players, I, I really don't, there's nothing about the A's that's very interesting to watch. And as such, they are struggling this year. And it is what it is. And, you know, they have a run differential of minus 177. They have 178 runs scored total on the year. I don't think I've ever seen a team that has a worse run differential than the amount of runs scored they've had. But if the A's lose today 4-2, to two, we'll see that for the first time. Um, or I guess 3-1 to one would have to do it or something like that. But uh, I don't know how that's even possible, but the A's have just kind of redefined the definition of bad. Worst pitching staff of all time. All right, we might have to research that. Let's move on uh, over to the National League starting in the East. Trust me, they're up there. Um, the a the Braves, I almost said the A's because they have an A as their logo, but the Braves, they just lost first game of, the, of a very emotional series so far, even though it's one game in. It feels like it's been like a whole playoff series already between the Braves and the Dodgers, uh, as it always feels with them. But four and six in their last 10, Kind of have cooled off a little bit. Meanwhile, coming up behind them, kind of doing what the what the Braves did last year after a slow start. The Mets, they're 25 and 23, four and a half games back. They've won five in a row. They are seven and three in their last 10. In the same way that the Braves called up Michael Harris, he won rookie of the year, blah, 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 blah. They got so much better throughout the year. The Mets are doing the same thing with Brett Beatty, with uh, Francisco Alvarez as well this year. It'll be interesting to see if that can carry out through the rest of the season. The Marlins continue to get a little bit lucky, but they're at 500. That is nothing to scoff at. Uh, the worst run differential in this division, the worst run differential in all of the National League, but they're still at 500, so they don't really care about that. Uh, and then you have the Phillies, who are 22 and 25, seven games back. They're four and six in their last 10. The Nationals, they're 20 and 27, four and six in their last 10, but they've won two in a row. They're honestly a bit more respectable than I thought they would be this season. Okay, let's move on to the NL Central. At last... The Pirates have somewhat been dethroned. Um, the Brewers have moved into a divisional tie at the top of this race, 25 and 22 for both teams. 
The Brewers five and five in their last ten. The Pirates four and six in their last ten. But the story of this division right now is the fact that there is no separation uh, between the bottom and the top of this division. The Reds are twenty and twenty-seven at the bottom. They're five games back. The Cardinals are tied with them at twenty-one and twenty-eight. They're five games back as well. But they feel like I mean honestly, I, I said that the Cardinals' terrible start meant that the Brewers were probably going to win this division. But the fact that the Cardinals are already only five games back of the Brewers is just crazy to me. Um, they really do have a chance to pull this all the way back. They went on an incredible streak um, after sweeping Boston. Then they took three or four from the Dodgers over the weekend. The Cubs in the middle of this division have been tumbling down. They're three and seven in their last 10. There's a real opportunity for the Cardinals here uh, to make a run. And I do believe that with their roster quality, they are maybe a starting pitcher at the deadline and one pitcher stepping up away from being a quality team, a playoff team. Um, but for now, Still stuck seven games under 500, but on a good run. Maybe going to move up to third or second in this division. They were third a few days ago, uh, but maybe going to move up to second in this division in a few weeks. It, it might be possible. I see it with their talent and with their roster construction. Okay. Uh, if we're done with the Central, we'll move on to the West. Finally, in the West, you have the third best record in all of baseball, tied with a bunch of other teams, but the first team, the NL, to 30 wins. It is the Los Angeles Dodgers. I talked about the roster turnover that the Astros have dealt with. Um, and still been able to build a quality team. The Dodgers are the same. Uh, yesterday, it was Gavin Stone, who he didn't, he didn't qualify for the win, but he did start the game in a win against the Atlanta Braves, the second best team in the NL. I mean, the two best teams going at it, um, both teams with bullpens that are tired right now. Um, and it showed in that first game of the series, Charlie Morton not able to give the Braves the length that they needed. But the Dodgers, again, just keep churning out wins, um, churning out winning rosters. Meanwhile, Speaking of doing those things, the Diamondbacks are 28 and 20. They are eight and two in their last 10. They've won three in a row, and they're just one and a half games back of the Dodgers um, at 28 and 20. Just a surprise to see them there. Uh, the Dodgers had that rough start to the season, and I really feel like they'd have a lot of separation if they didn't have that start. But at the same time, the Diamondbacks continue to play well. Uh, just beat the Phillies yesterday. We'll see if they can do it again. Uh, and then in third place in this division, it's the San Diego Padres. Just kidding. It's not the Padres. They're terrible. They're 2-8 and eight in their last 10. They're on their way to last place in this division instead of first place, which is what they thought they were going to be going in the year. Um, the Giants are in third at 23-24, and 24, just a little bit under 500, just one game under. Six games back in the division. They're 6-4 and four in their last 10. Uh, but the Padres, as I said, 2-8 and eight in their last 10. They have no offense. Um, the A's have 177 runs scored or 178 runs scored on the year, the Padres have 182. That's all you need to know about this team. No offense, considering the fact that their lineup has Tatis, Soto, Machado, and Bogarts in it. That is incredibly embarrassing uh, for this roster, but the Dodgers have just broken them once again. We'll see if they can rebound at some point. And then finally, you have the Rockies at 20 and 28. The worst record in the National League, but still above a 400 winning percentage, so not really much to say about them. They're just not a great team, uh, but they're not a horrible team either. All right, well, that wraps up our look at Major League Baseball for the week. It also wraps this edition of the 4th and 24 podcast. Please be sure to check out our next podcast, which as of next week, will be moving back to Mondays. So our next podcast will be on Monday, May 29th. In that podcast, we will once again recap Patrick's weekend predictions, continue our review of NBA and NHL playoff action, although the NBA will be quite limited, as Patrick mentioned, and have our weekly look at Major League Baseball. In the meantime, please be sure to check out Patrick's additional content, including his picks for next weekend's games, 
that will be posted as always on Thursday and his MLB power rankings that will be updated on Wednesday. That content is on our website, 4thand24.com. That's the number four, T-H-A-N-D, the number 24.com. Thank you for listening.